Our text this morning is Matthew chapter 21 and verse 10. But it comes out of a much larger setting in Matthew chapter 21. In chapter 21 and verse 10, we find there, when he was come to Jerusalem, all the city was moved. But what I want you to do is I want you to travel with me this morning by an eye of faith back to that time in the first century. Let's go to a little village by the name of Bethpage. Bethpage is a village on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. It's adjacent to Bethany. Bethany, if you remember, is that little village where the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus was, that home where Jesus so often went for rest and relaxation and refreshment, that home that the latchkey was always out and the welcome mat was always there for the Lord to go. And these two villages were so close together on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives that to visit one was to visit the other. It was like the, the city limit signs were on the same pole, that entering Bethpage, leaving Bethany on the other side of the road, it just said the opposite. Well, while there in that little village of Bethpage, Jesus told two of his disciples, go into the village center. And there you're going to find a donkey that's tied up. And with that donkey's going to be a colt. I want you to untie both of them. If someone asks you why, just tell them the Master has need of them. And I want you to bring me that donkey and I want you to bring me that colt. So the disciples did exactly what Jesus commanded them to do. And they brought both of the animals to Him. Jesus took the smaller of the two, the colt. A colt that had never been ridden. Remember that, that's significant. And his disciples threw their coats over the back of that colt. And Jesus sat down on that colt and he started making his journey toward Jerusalem. I want you to see that scene. I want you to see the Lord of glory. Riding into Jerusalem on this young colt that's never had a rider on its back before. And he's making a triumphant entry into the city of Jerusalem. He's coming to Jerusalem as a conquering hero. And as he enters the streets, the crowd that's gathered there, they spread their cloaks and their coats before him on the road. They cut branches from the trees and they spread them on the road. And they're shouting, Blessed is He that comes in the name of the Lord. And as Jesus enters that city, the whole city of Jerusalem is electrified with excitement. And people wanted to know, Who is this? It says. And they kept asking, Who is this? And the crowds replied, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth. And yet, in a few short days, that adoring crowd, that crowd that's spreading their cloaks in His path and spreading the branches from the trees in His way, that adoring crowd is going to become an angry mob. In less than a week, they're going to be shouting for Jesus 
from Nazareth in Galilee to be crucified. And by Friday, He's going to be hanging on a rough-hewn wooden cross between two thieves, dying the most ignominious death that a man could die, dying a death that's reserved for the most rebellious and hardened of criminals. And hanging there on that rough-hewn wooden cross, they'll pierce His side with a spear and Jesus Christ is going to bleed out hanging on that cross. But for now, at this very moment, He's coming into the city as a conquering hero. He has ridden into the city on an unbroken colt. He has, with great composure, accepted the palm waving and the praise from a joyous group of fellow peasants. Notice something. Jesus did not force His claim to kingship by riding some fine, big, white horse at the head of an army. Jesus had long since met and overcome the temptation to resort to the powers of this world. If you remember, after His baptism by John and Jordan, He'd gone out all alone and met the devil in hand-to-hand combat in the wilderness. And the devil had taken Jesus to a high mountain and said, I'll give you all these kingdoms of the world if you'll just fall down and worship Me. And Jesus had seen the evil of the devil's suggestion. He said, it is written... Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and Him only shalt thou serve. And He commanded the devil to depart from Him. Jesus had overcome the temptation to be a world-like hero. And on this day, riding into Jerusalem on the colt of a humble donkey, Jesus makes it clear the peaceful means by which He plans to establish His kingdom. And He makes clear the peaceful character of that kingdom. He comes with simple pageantry on a colt that has never submitted to human command. According to tradition, because this colt had never been written, That colt was suited to sacred service. And Jesus was not followed by a regiment of finely dressed soldiers with shining, glistening shields and plumes in their helmets. His followers were simply a band of simple, devoted disciples. And those simple, devoted disciples were followed by a group of pilgrims from other provinces and foreign lands. They were all on their way to the feast, the Passover. Now, there might be some that looking at Jesus riding into Jerusalem that day would question His motives. They would question His intentions. But before the week is over, Jesus is going to say to Pontius Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. 
And then he's going to further tell Pilate, just for emphasis, if my kingdom was of this world, my servants would fight. That's in John chapter 18, verse 36. Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem that day as the Prince of Peace. And Jesus Christ is still the Prince of Peace. Just as Jesus came riding humbly into Jerusalem that day so long ago, Jesus would come humbly riding into Center, Texas right now that same way. But when Jesus comes riding into the city, whether it's Jerusalem or whether it's Center, there are certain people that Jesus can't enlist in His service. Jesus cannot enlist the fickle in His service. When Jesus came into Jerusalem, it tells us the whole city was moved. People wanted to know, who is this? And there was a ready answer to that question. That's Jesus of Nazareth, the prophet of Galilee. And as Jesus rode into the city that day, they spread their garments ahead of Him as a carpet for Him to ride in on. They stripped branches from olive trees and palm trees and they waved those in His honor. And to Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of David, they cried aloud their praise. You see, if you carefully read the Gospels, you realize it's not been that long since Lazarus had been put in the tomb. And that Jesus had gone to the tomb of Lazarus and said, Lazarus, come forth. And He had come forth still bound by the grave clothes. Well, no doubt that exciting news about Lazarus being raised from the dead had spread near and far. And that news of Lazarus being raised from the dead, that was going to greet these pilgrims that they, as they came up to Jerusalem for the feast. Now, in that far off day, there were many. Oh, there were so many that were ready to believe in Jesus as the deliverer of Israel, that He was going to set up David's throne again in Jerusalem. And that drama of this movement has caught them up in this procession. And it's caught up the drama of the mood and the drama of the mood as, movement as Jesus proceeds in there into the city. Right now. At this very moment. As Jesus is riding into Jerusalem triumphantly, it's easy to believe that He is indeed the Son of David. It's easy to believe that He is indeed the long-promised Messiah. But there were the curious. There were the skeptical. There were the scornful. Who is this? And from the lips of the joyous marchers came that spontaneous response. This is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth from Galilee. Jesus accepted their adoration. Jesus accepted their praise. And by doing so, He acknowledged the acclaim of that shouting throng. But Jesus was the Son of God. Jesus knew all things. Jesus knew what was in the heart of mankind. And even then, 
as they shouted His praises, as they waved the olive branches and the palm branches, as they spread their cloaks in front of Him on His path, even then, Jesus could hear the distant roar of the raging mob from later in the week. Because in a few short days, this is Sunday, in just a few short days, those same people that are praising Him today are going to be crying loudly, Away with Him! Let Him be crucified! Later in this same week. And the multitude of people marching and following with Jesus that day were fickle followers. People who could easily change their loyalty. People who, on a whim, could change their attitude. In fact, there have been many whose belief in Jesus as the Messiah was based primarily on such signs and wonders as the raising of Lazarus. And there were some that day like that. Even in our day and time, Though their praise may not be based on the raising of Lazarus, there are many in our own day and time who proclaim loyalty to Jesus Christ, who know absolutely nothing about an intimate, personal fellowship with Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as their abiding Lord and Redeemer. His parable that He taught of the four kinds of soil. Jesus pictured those kind of unstable people. The fickle. Those who joyfully receive the truth into stony and shallow soil. (coughs) Soil that quickly sprouts. Soil that for a time seems to flourish. But with no deep roots. The grain soon withers away under the scorching heat of tribulation and persecution and tough times. Even in our own day. When Jesus Christ comes riding into Center, Texas, and He wants to work moral reform and He wants to work spiritual reform, sometimes there are those who gather for the enthusiasm of the cause of righteousness. And yet sometimes there are those that enthusiastically embrace the cause of Jesus Christ. And then when opposition develops, or when it starts to get tough, or when things get a little bit hard, the fickle, the easily swayed, the unstable, those without deep roots, desert what has become perhaps unpopular or difficult or hard. Some even reach the point they scream with the crowd in the long ago, give us Barabbas. Jesus doesn't want the fickle. Jesus also does not want the secularist, the worldly. When Jesus enters Jerusalem on this occasion, we see Jesus as He cleanses the temple.
for the second time. He's already cleansed the temple once. When he turned over the tables of the money changers and he made a whip out of cords and drove the frightened cattle out. Well, once again in the court of the Gentiles, he sees the worldly there selling beasts and fowls for use as sacrifices. He sees others there in the temple court who for a price are exchanging foreign money into the sacred shekel and half shekel of the temple. They learn something. That Jesus Christ as Lord will not tolerate their God of gain. To accept the reign of Jesus in their lives means you have to renounce worldliness and sacrilege. And no doubt, many recall the sudden appearance of the prophet of Nazareth in the temple on that previous occasion we referred to. That time he drove out the beasts and overturned the tables of the money changers. What does it say in here about Jesus? He looked on all things. He looked round about on all things. When Jesus comes to our town or any other town, He looks around about on all things like He did in that day. And even in churches sometimes, Jesus sees things He can't approve of. In our day and time, there are those who often make merchandise of church membership. They want to join a particular group of people because it might be the most popular in town. Or it might be the most prestigious in town. Or it might be the one that offers the most opportunities for interacting in business in town. And people choose what group they might want to belong to, not based on whether they follow the teachings of the New Testament, but for business advantage, or sometimes for social advantage, or sometimes to be entertained. You know, as bad as I hate to admit it, if people are coming to church for entertainment purposes, with Leon and me, you're just out of luck. There's a lot better singers than Leon out there. And there are a whole lot better stand-up entertainers than me out there. So if folks want to come for entertainment, Leon, we are not it, are we, buddy? But you see, Jesus finds sometimes in our world where people call a place the house of prayer, And it's actually become a place for carnal feasting and amusement purposes and carnival pleasures. Often in our day and time we find churches claiming to be the house of prayer competing with the amusement world. Using those kinds of things to maybe gain a few more dollars to support the church or maybe to attract a few more members. We've seen it more and more and more, and it gets more rampant every year. People who, all over the length and breadth of this nation, want to make worship more of a production than praise. We see those that adjust the lighting, update the music style, 
incorporate drama and skits. And they do it all in an effort to manipulate the emotions of people and make sure that they enjoy a worship experience. And yet, are those who are enjoying that experience, and I say this kindly and I say it with love, are they really enjoying God? Or are they enjoying an entertaining show? Worship. Worship is something that comes from a heart that's been stirred by the goodness of God. And not from a heart that's been manipulated by dimmed lights and talented performers. Jesus said God is a spirit. And they that worship God must worship Him in spirit and in truth. That's in John chapter 4. True worship does not need light shows or loud music or fog machines to excite the soul. Beloved, Jesus Christ does not want His people to trade worship for theatrics. And Jesus has no place for self-righteousness. He cleansed the house of God from from profit-seeking secularists. Do you know what happened then, it says? If you keep reading in chapter 21, after He had cleaned the temple from the profit-seeking secularists, the blind and the lame came to Jesus in the temple and Jesus healed them. It also tells us that He taught daily in the temple. Jesus restored the temple to its proper uses. Worship, teaching, and healing. Guess what? That enraged the leaders of the synagogue, the chief priests and the scribes. And He didn't win any friends among the Pharisees either or the elders of the people. In fact, those leaders actually sought to destroy Him. Now those men, the leaders of the synagogue, the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, the elders of the people, those should have been the very last ones to resent that Jesus cleansed the temple. But you see, their authority has been openly ignored and defiled. In Jewish society, those men constituted an order of tremendous power. Power that, humanly speaking, was sufficient to bring the Son of God to death on the cross. And that was going to be their revenge. Under their leadership, the religious and moral life of the people had been reduced to barren formulas. Things that stunted or prevented the growth of the souls of men and women. Those Pharisees, those scribes, those priests... They had all the answers. And that left little room for faith in God. They piled heavy burdens on the shoulders of weary men and women. 
They gave far more heed to tradition than they did to the Scriptures. They put emphasis on things that were not essential. And they ignored the commandment of Christ we've talked about the last couple of weeks where Jesus commanded that we love each other. The neglect of the things that mattered gave us the word Phariseeism. Jesus wanted to see men and women that had hearts filled with love. That's what He wants us to do, is love one another. That's the badge of discipleship. That's why we talked about it last Sunday. Paul says, it's the most excellent way. It's the way of love. A little later, here in Jerusalem, Jesus pronounces woes on these Pharisees. And I want you to let me read and listen particularly to Matthew chapter 23, verses 23 through 28. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. These ought you to have done, and not to have left the other undone. You blind guides that strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You make clean the outside of the cup of the platter, but within they're full of extortion and excess. Thou blind Pharisee, cleanse first what is within the cup and platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You're like unto whited sepulchres that indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and all kinds of uncleanness. Even so, you outwardly appear righteous to men, but within you're full of hypocrisy and iniquity. You see, beloved, what would Jesus say if He came to our town? What would Jesus say if He came to sinner the way He came to Jerusalem? Would He find us like those Pharisees in that far off day, appearing beautiful outward, but soiled and stained and corrupt inside? What would He find? Would He find men and women who are committed to His cause? Would He find men and women who have made Him the Lord of their lives? Or would you find people that were more concerned about the things of the world than the things of God? Would you find people that followed Him when the skies are sunny but desert Him when the storm clouds come and life gets hard? Would you find people that omit the more important things like justice, mercy, and faithfulness from their lives? What would he find? If Jesus came to Center, Texas, right now, today, what would Jesus see in my life? What would he see in your life? Would he see people that genuinely love the Lord? Would he see people that have made him Lord and Master of their lives? I don't know what's going on in your life. But if there are changes that need to be made, 
for you to make Jesus Christ the Lord and Master of your life. If we can help you with those changes, this is your opportunity to come and let us help you and do what's necessary for Jesus to be Lord of all of your life. If you need to respond, it's your opportunity as we stand and while we sing.